and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Peter Adamson on a very interesting publication uh, called Classical Indian Philosophy. Even more interesting is the subtitle, A History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps, Volume 5. Peter, welcome to the program. Hi there. Thanks for having me, Raj. Nice to be on the show. So I think we need to dive into that subtitle and tell folks where it comes from. Yeah, this is a good place to start. This is part of a series, as one could probably infer from the fact that it's volume five. And the series is actually based on, of all things, a podcast. So this is kind of something that began with a podcast, now ending in a podcast as I talk to you about this. And the podcast has been running, that is my podcast, has been running since 2010. So I'm coming up on 10 years of doing it. And the podcast is called The History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. The idea being to cover the whole history of philosophy from the beginning to now, maybe, and also in all cultures. So in theory, at least, the idea would be the whole history of philosophy presented in a fairly detailed way, but also in a way that's accessible to a wide audience. Um, So... Originally, my idea was to start with ancient Greek philosophy or even the pre-Socratics, so the first ancient Greek philosophers, and move through the history of philosophy sort of in the style of a history podcast rather than in the style of a philosophy podcast. In other words, uh, for example, when I finished Aristotle, I didn't skip to Augustine or Aquinas or whatever. I went on to the students of Aristotle And I have tried to go through the whole history of philosophy without leaving anything out. So um, there's actually two different feeds. So people would have to subscribe to them separately if they're listening to it as a podcast feed. It's all on the same website. And in the uh, original feed that's only covered ancient philosophy, philosophy in the Islamic world, medieval philosophy, Byzantine philosophy, and now I'm doing Renaissance philosophy, in that I'm coming up on 350 episodes while we're recording this. I may have gotten there by the time you release this. And then there's another uh, about 70 episodes on Indian philosophy, and we've got 50 episodes on Africana philosophy. So not at all an ambitious undertaking, is this? <laughs> no, it's a sort of minor <laughs> hobby. Exactly. So, so you're endeavoring to cover uh, the totality of um, uh, philosophical human thought cross-culturally since the beginning of recorded time in a way that's accessible to the layperson. Yeah, except that actually for the Africana episodes uh, for the for that series, we actually have an episode on prehistoric Africa. So it's, we go before the beginning of recorded time. My, my apologies. Even, <laughs> even, less, even less ambitious than I, I had inferred. So... The podcast that you we have to comment on the the fact this is very sort of like uh, Indian epics uh, this kind of motif, but it's like, but uh, basically we're doing a podcast on a publication resulted from a podcast. Yeah, and I hope there's no explosion. It's like yeah, seeing the streams in Ghostbusters or something. Okay, there might be one. Um, Let's. I think folks would be interested in the whole in, in your journey with podcasting. I think that might be something that's um, I hope interesting to our audience. Uh, I imagine it would be. So, could you tell us a little bit about? Um, uh, you know, you, I'll leave you uh, 
uh, I'll give you leeway to approach it however you'd like, but I think folks would be interested in, for example, who that podcast was for, um, where they might be able to find that podcast, sort of how you started up in, I think you said 2010, and, and what was the... Um, what was the world of podcast like in that time versus this? I mean, I think this is really an important question to think about, uh, given all that's happening in our world. Uh, yeah. And so if you can give us a sense of, of, of that, that podcasting journey, that'd be great. Yeah, I didn't realize at the time that I was getting into the podcast phenomenon early. In fact, I thought I might be getting into it late. Because in 2010, there were quite a few podcasts already. And I was a an avid podcast listener. So I got into it as a listener, not as a podcast producer in the first instance. And I'm a historian of philosophy. So I was listening to a lot of history podcasts and I was also listening to philosophy podcasts. And it occurred to me that it would be really cool if someone did, as I said before, a podcast about philosophy, but in the style of a history podcast. So here I was thinking of models like there's a podcast called The History of Rome, which is done by someone named Mike Duncan, who has gone on to do another brilliant podcast series called Revolutions, which I highly recommend. And he did the history of the Roman Republican Empire in, I don't know, something like 170 episodes. So it was very detailed and fine grained. And that really spoke to me as a way of approaching philosophy because it, as it happens, the areas of philosophy that I tend to work on in my professional life are areas that often get ignored. So my main areas of specialty are actually is not Indian philosophy. We'll come on to that, I guess. But my main areas of expertise are late ancient philosophy and philosophy in the Islamic world. And to some extent, classical Greek philosophy and Latin medieval philosophy. So that's really my area of expertise. So a lot of the philosophers that I work on in my day job are, are figures that most people have not heard of. And so I thought, well, if I did a podcast about philosophy that just took a chronological approach and tried to highlight the interest and excitement of basically everything without leaving anything out, hence without any gaps. That's the, the hence the slogan. Um, I just thought that that would be a really exciting project and also something that you could never do in the context of a classroom, right? Because you can't teach the whole history of philosophy. You actually have to be extremely selective when you decide what to teach at a university. And in fact, uh, you know, philosophy majors at any university would come out of it knowing much, much less history of philosophy than someone who's listened consistently to my podcast, especially someone who listens to this ideal version of the podcast that won't exist for another 30 years, probably. Um, I, I mean, that's not to say that the podcast is somehow better than university teaching. I think it's different. University teaching is a lot deeper and you engage with the material in a much more active way. And of course you get like in-class discussion and everything. So I would never say that that podcast could be a substitute for that. But if you just want to kind of get a sense of the range and topics that appear in various places and times in the history of philosophy, I think this can deliver that in a way that uh, university education can't. So in a way, it was you know part of part of it was just an idea of uh, an idea of how to convey the sense of the history of philosophy in a way that would be very difficult to do in a publication or in classroom teaching. 
That sounds fascinating. So we'll probably post a link with this uh, podcast, but where can folks find your... Oh, it has its own website. So it's at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Great. And so um, do you want to say anything about, I mean, a podcast versus a blog or or the medium? There seems to be something there about the the the... the sort of sound medium that's quite different, isn't it? Yeah, and in fact, that's a challenge because of course, um, in general, philosophy is a textual discipline and especially history of philosophy is textual, right? Because you are dealing with primary sources. And one thing that I've often kind of struggled with is the question of how much to actually quote from the primary sources. Actually, that has even varied from one part of it to another, because especially in the series that I'm doing now with Chike Jeffers on Africana philosophy, we've found that we're tending to quote the original sources quite a lot. And I think that might be in part because they're, they tend to be unfamiliar, but in part it's because we've been doing a lot of 19th century African-American thought. So the works are actually in English. And maybe there's a stronger temptation to quote directly from you know, Frederick Douglass than from, say, Thomas Aquinas, because it's, it was written in English. It's also rhetorically much more direct and kind of easy to appreciate than, a, you know, the, the meat of a disputed question from Thomas Aquinas would be. So that's one issue. Um, another issue is I think a lot about the kind of voice of the podcast, which, of course, and sometimes it's just this voice you're hearing right now, that is also the, the style in which it's written. So I try to write in this direct, easy to follow, kind of engaging way. They're jokes. Um, and that's not how I would normally write about the history of philosophy. So it's much more kind of informal in, in terms of the way that it's written, despite probably being more formal than a lot of podcasts because it is scripted, which is how we get onto the books, which I guess we can come to in a second. But um, the podcast exists in the first instance as scripts that I've written and then I record them into a microphone. Actually, this microphone I'm using now to talk to you. Um, and I mix that with episodes that are interviews with other scholars because I want to get a chance for the listener to hear another perspective and another voice. So it's just kind of to mix it up and also to give more depth on certain topics. And so how do you go from your particular niche or background expertise into doing um, um, the history of philosophy in India? Like, how do you go in terms of what was the impetus for doing that? And then how did you prepare to do that? Well, in general, one of the things I like most about the project actually is that I get a lot of listener feedback on matters great and small. So sometimes people will pick me up on small factual errors or big factual errors and they'll, you know, leave a comment on the website. Like that was the wrong year that I gave if I'm giving a date for something or whatever. And I get a lot of feedback also on things that I should have covered, things that I should cover in the future, the way that I should go about dealing with certain topics. So that's really helpful actually. And it's just interesting because it means I get to interact with a very large number of people from different backgrounds, mostly on the website where you can leave comments, but also on Twitter. I'm quite active on Twitter. And originally, uh, I'm going to come out and admit that um, I did not plan to do Indian philosophy. In fact, the original version of episode one said kind of apologetically 
when I say I'm going to do the history of philosophy without any gaps, I don't mean the whole history of philosophy everywhere because I don't know anything about philosophy in India and China. So what I mean is basically European philosophy plus philosophy in the Islamic world because that's what I do, right? And almost from day one, maybe not day one, but once pe- once a certainly once a large number of people started listening to the podcast, people started writing in and saying, "How can you call this the history of philosophy without any gaps if you're not doing India and China? And what about Japan and Korea, right?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I know," but and I kind of went back and forth with them, but my heart really wasn't in it because I knew they were right. And so eventually, I decided that the choice wasn't really whether I should do it, but how I should do it. And I was on the one hand tempted to try to do it myself because I was actually, I had, maybe not so much then when I started doing Indian philosophy, because that was around the time that I was just wrapping up Islamic philosophy, I think. But I have covered a lot of things in the podcast that I was not an expert on. And that's happened more and more as, as time has gone on. So I mean, I did like, I don't know, however many episodes it is on Byzantine philosophy, like 20 episodes on Byzantine philosophy. And what I knew about Byzantine philosophy before I did that, I could have told you in about a minute and a half, you know. So for all of the topics, um, once I've left my main areas of specialty behind, there's been a lot of reading and, you know, digging into the research but I still didn't really trust myself to cover something like Indian philosophy without an expert really helping me and not just an expert like reading the scripts and telling me what was wrong, but an expert actually doing it with me. And so I thought, well, who is the person I would most like to do this with? Well, Gennard and Ganeri would be amazing because he's like one of the leading figures in the field. And I knew him a little bit from my time in the UK because I used to work at King's College London and we had actually examined a paper on the Indian philosophy, uh, on Indian philosophy together. So I was, I was the examiner who didn't know anything. He was the examiner who did know something. Um, so I had dealt with him before and I knew that we got along and everything. So I contacted him and he said he would do it. And then, um, in a similar way, I joined forces with GK Jeffers to do Africana philosophy, which we're doing now. And in the future, I'll be doing Chinese philosophy with another colleague. So that's sort of my plan in general is to try to do European philosophy myself, hoping that I can kind of get on top of it by reading up and just taking it one step at a time. And these, what people sometimes call non-Western traditions, I always get a colleague who's a really an expert in the field to write it with me. So when the critique comes in that, well, this is this podcast is a history of philosophy without any gaps, and uh, but you're only doing Western philosophy, uh, why did you opt to include um, other swaths of the globe rather than just change the subtitle to history of Western philosophy without any gaps? That would have been a lot easier, right? <laughs> yeah, but but I mean I mean that also uh, a bit of a quip, but I also mean that in terms of uh, um, it's a genuine question in hopes of gaining access to your decision making. Why did you feel it important to bother to do all this work and, and sort of rebrand the podcast and like what, you know, what, like why? Well, maybe here it probably makes a big difference that I am already someone who works in a so-called non-Western field because my most of my research is actually on philosophy in the Islamic world. 
And even just through that, I was interested in India because, of course, there's a kind of overlap between philosophy in the Islamic world and Indian philosophy, because for a while, India is part of the Islamic world. And in fact, it still is. Um, so in the sense that, that Muslims live there, but during the Mughal period, which we don't reach in this book, but which I did cover in the series on philosophy in the Islamic world, um, you have uh, you know, a Persianate uh, empire based in India, right? So, and even before that, of course, there's a lot of cultural contact between the Islamic world and India. Um, and I was also curious, I've always been curious, a lot of people are curious about the interchange between the ancient Greek and Roman worlds and India. So I kind of had an interest and curiosity in it. And I also had come up, I had come into contact with Indian philosophy enough to know that it would be really interesting to learn more about it. So partially, partially, to be honest, it was almost a kind of selfish motive, like, oh, this is my big chance to learn something about Indian philosophy. So it was partially that, but it's also because I think that um, the, the podcast is... So one of the things that it can do that's valuable is putting major European thinkers in a context that is more rich and continuous than what people usually are confronted with. So like I said, I don't, I don't like this way of doing philosophy where you skip from Aristotle to Aquinas to Descartes. That just seems kind of like tourism, intellectual tourism to me, rather than serious history of philosophy. Uh, even though I know why people do it because there's limits on time and energy. But then I thought, well, if the mission here is to expose people to philosophical ideas that they may be unfamiliar with, then what could be more exciting than exposing them to whole cultures of philosophy that they're not familiar with? Um, and also, like I said, I had been covering a lot of topics that I wasn't that familiar with myself already and have continued doing that since. So I sort of felt like, well, you know, it's just the difference between reading up on Byzantium and reading up on India. And it, either way, I'm going to have a lot to learn. Um, and it will be exciting to learn and sort of invite the listeners to learn along with me. So that was really how I thought about it, is that it just kind of made sense and it was consistent with the goals of the podcast more generally. Um, and I, I guess I have to say there is, in, in, there is maybe a more polemical side to it too. Because part of what I had always wanted to say was that when people think about the history of philosophy, they have this very narrow-minded, selective understanding of what that means and what it could mean. And I just thought this was like an unparalleled uh, opportunity to broaden that out. Um, and especially if I could get someone as good as Jan Arden to do it with me. Um, if he had said no, I don't know what I would have done. I don't know what I would have thought. I thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't do this after all. Maybe I would have, would have asked a second person. But he said yes, so I didn't have to worry about that. Great. So I have a, a sort of comment that comes to mind, and then and I have a question about the collaboration. Uh, the comment is that, um, you know, throughout throughout my post-secondary education, I really gravitated towards um, a literature, you know, social science, history, and so I enrolled, uh, um, I enrolled to do a, an English degree with minors in philosophy and history at the University of Toronto for an undergrad. And I did two years of that. I did fairly well. Um, but there was something missing my, you know, my, 
heart wasn't really in it at the time and there were a bunch of pressures in my personal life. Um, and so I left and I went to work for a while. And then about three years later, I discovered um, a course called Introduction to the Hindu Religious Tradition. I'm like, oh, I didn't even know religious studies was a discipline. I mean, here I am, theoretically halfway through my undergrad. I, I currently now, you know, have a, a master's and a PhD in religion. I didn't even know it was a discipline. Um, enrolled in the course, uh, it, 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 it succeeded in drawing me back into school. I took severance, finished my BA, did my MA, did my PhD. And I thought to myself, look, here I am doing my term papers on um, Shankara's ideas, right? Veda Vedanta. Uh, I remember really loving philosophy, like deeply, even my intro philosophy course. Um, first year, and I remember sort of doing the math a few years later and thinking, well, it's, you know, I didn't realize at the time that philosophy was Western philosophy. I didn't, it didn't, it was rather naive, but I, I really didn't have the context. You know, I grew up in Toronto and my family was West Indian. And so these ideas weren't part of our household or our consciousness. And so when I discovered some staggering Indian philosophy, it really succeeded in bringing me back to school to study literature and philosophy and history under what we call religious studies because there's nowhere else really to study philosophy and literature in India in the West in that way. And so I think it's interesting that, that, that you know, I imagine that this comment relates with um, what you're saying about the scope of this podcast. Would you say so? Yeah, definitely. And in fact, I think that that's changing in the sense that um, Indian philosophy, also Chinese philosophy, occasionally also Africana philosophy is now part of the offering at some philosophy departments, including Toronto, by the way, they've actually appointed um, specialists in Indian philosophy, including Jannard Ganeri, who I wrote this book with. Um, And so they are actually now a center for Indian philosophy as of very recently. Um, and I think that that actually is a really interesting, what you said there is really interesting because I actually think about that a lot. Like what, what if you came into philosophy through Chinese philosophy or Indian philosophy, as you very well might, if you were from India or from China or from an Indian or Chinese background, and then you discovered European philosophy and you thought, oh, they have philosophy too. That's interesting because, of course, we usually think about that, at least as a philosophy profession, we think about that from the other way around, like, oh, do we want to bestow the exalted name of philosophy on some of the things that were done in China and India, right? Um, So we talk about that a little bit in the preface to the book. Um, But I think that although, you know, you can have interesting debates about what does and does not count as philosophy in different cultures. Actually, that debate as concerns India is not really very interesting because as I always say, people who deny that Indian philosophy is a thing are literally people who have spent less than five minutes looking into it. I mean, that's how long it takes. Well, I mean, you can just, even if our book didn't exist, but you can crack open a book like our book and just start leafing through it and see, oh, they're arguing about you know knowledge by testimony and uh, monist metaphysics like, like Advaita Vedanta, which you just mentioned, and philosophy of language, and there's political philosophy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They basically cover all 
uh, areas of philosophy and often in pretty familiar ways, often in unfamiliar ways as well. But, you know, there's philosophy of mind and it's very clearly philosophy of mind. So I don't, I don't think that um, if, if, I think if people are turning to these so-called non-Western traditions in an, an attempt to find out whether there could be philosophy in non-European cultures, that's not a really a very good question because the question will be answered so definitively, so quickly that there's, it's not like, that's not the question. The question is um, what exactly does the Indian philosophy, philosophical tradition bring to the table that we wouldn't have had if we only had European philosophy. But I don't think the question is whether it is philosophy. There's just no doubt that it is. I mean, if philosophy is anything, then it existed in ancient India and since as well. Well, I, that's a great comment, and you've segued into exactly what I wanted to ask next, which was about the, the first chapter of your book, talking about the extent to which um, Indian philosophy is philosophy, and I think you've more or less answered that. One quick footnote to our, our previous exchange. Um, my, my immediate undergrad experience was over 20 years ago at the University of Toronto, so things have probably changed a great deal now. Probably. Then, yeah. then <laughs> no, I, I mean that sort of, you know, I mean that earnestly, like uh, there's absolutely no um, non-Western philosophy that I noticed when I was rolling there. And it was fine. I didn't expect to find any non-Western philosophy, frankly. But I, at the same time, I didn't, I wasn't afforded the, the exposure that one can perhaps be afforded doing an undergrad now or, 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 or one has at their fingertips listening to podcasts like yours, for example. Um, so I think you've kind of put to bed your, 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 your position on the idea, well, is Indian philosophy philosophy, and is it sort of like round, round holes and square pegs? And I mean, on the one hand, is this sort of uh, this kind of mindset, this frankly cultural arrogance of well, to other traditions, do philosophy, right? Um, that's one way of looking at it. And I think you're saying, well, yeah, sure. In, in the case of India, yes. What about the idea of um, are Western categories sufficient in grappling with what we're seeing in India? Do you counter that in your studies? Yeah, I think that's actually a much more interesting and difficult question. So when I say clearly there is Indian philosophy, what I mean by that is Clearly, there are very sophisticated discussions from ancient and also modern India uh, about all of the things that we cover in philosophy. Right? So name me a philosophical topic, and, I, and we can probably give you an example from our book of someone from classical India who's dealing with that question. Um, I guess, though, that you, you could think about philosophy as something more like a cultural practice. Right, so the word is Greek, right? Philosophia, and you could say, well, uh, let's imagine that poetry—sorry, not poetry. Let's imagine that um, philosophy is something that um, actually is not like poetry. So it's not something that exists in every culture. It's something that only exists in ancient Greece and cultures that inherited the idea of philosophy from ancient Greece. So actually, there, there's a. a an example that Chike and I used in the first episode of the Africana series, which is the difference between dance and ballet, 
which I think Chike got from another author whose name escapes me. So ballet is culturally specific, right? It's a French thing. And it has, and if you're doing ballet, then you're situated in this tradition that goes back to this French tradition of dance. So it's it would be fair to say that not every culture can independently come up with ballet, right? And by contrast, dance is something that exists in every culture. So the question here is whether philosophy is like dance or is like ballet. And in a way, and here's where I think India is really interesting because India proves that philosophy is like dance, right? So if you look, you look at these classical Indian texts and you think to yourself, well, what, what genre am I going to put this in? If I don't put it in philosophy, like it's a treatise about, you know, does perception give us knowledge, right? Okay. So you tell me what that is if it's not philosophy. And I think if that way of thinking about it might um, be more interesting. So I think that what India does is that it's the, probably the non-Western tradition that's the most powerful and convincing and really indisputable case of philosophy developing in complete independence or, or at least very large independence from the Greek tradition. So they don't do philosophy because of Greece. They just do philosophy. And it's clear that that's what they're doing. Well, it's uh, the analogy that came to my mind uh, as you're speaking, but also as I was reading some of the material in your book is um, music really resonates as an apt analog in that, uh, you know, is there music in India? Well, if you mean, is there a treble clef in a D major with two sharps to indicate that it's D major? Probably not. But is there music? I mean, so for me, certainly there's, certainly there's music in India. There's a rich and vibrant musical tradition. And, and for me, it's a foregone conclusion that music is just perennially human. Wherever there are humans, there's music. Not all humans are musical. But wherever humans exist, music exists, art exists. And for me, personally, uh, philosophy also exists. There are always going to be people who are sort of scratching their heads, examining um, existence, human existence, you know. And so, but, you know, also I came from a perspective of being an incorrigibly philosophical person growing up and then found um, ways to think and talk about what I sense to be true through studying you know, um, Greek philosophy in university. I found a language through studying, you know, Indian texts, Indian narrative texts, even. And so it occurred to me, like I wasn't just the first, the first moron who came out of the womb wondering about big questions and the meaning of reality. I'm sure there were many such fools who have come before me, and I, I have no reason to, 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 I have no reason to suspect that 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 it was anything about the water in Toronto that that. that <laughs> the fluoride levels in Toronto that, that trigger this chemical reaction in my brain. So, so for me, philosophy is obviously perennial, and I think, I think you, I, th- I think you're probably bang on to uh, use the term um, for what we see in India. Um, so, uh, I don't even know how to begin. There's just so many threads to your book. Tell us about the structure of your book. Tell us about the structure of your book. Uh, you know, how many chapters, how are they organized? Or is, there, is a chapter related to a uh, podcast per se? Or tell us about that first, maybe. Yeah, so each chapter is, a, is an episode from the podcast, more or less. So we do revise the um, material pretty substantially before it becomes a book. 
but um, I'm just looking up how many chapters there are. I was thinking it was about 50 and it's 49. So I was close. Um, so basically what you're getting in the book is a revised version of this of podcast scripts, not including the interviews. So there were, the reason there are about 70 ep- uh, episodes in the podcast and only about 50 chapters in the book is that the interviews are all, all left out. So if you want the interviews, you still have to go listen to them on the website or on the podcast feed. Um, so that means that the chapters are very consistent in length because we're always shooting for podcasts, episodes that are between 20, 25 minutes. So the chapters would each be about like three, three and a half thousand words. That's about how long they are. And uh, it goes, usually, so usually what the series does is that it goes chronologically. And that is sort of true here, but not very true. It's sort of true in the sense that we have a chunk which is about early material. And so that's basically uh, the Vedic texts. So we have a little bit of coverage of the Vedas, quite a lot of coverage of the Upanishads, and then some stuff about things like Hindu epics. So we talk, there's a couple of chapters about the Mahabharata. Obviously, we cover the Bhagavad Gita. Um, and then we also look at the beginnings of Buddhism and, and Jainism. So that's a kind of first chronological chunk. And then we move on from there to two further chunks, which really are looking at developments that are all happening at the same time. So this is part of the complexity of Indian philosophy is that it would be really, really confusing to try to just go through one figure after another in chronological order. And that's confu- it would be confusing, first of all, because there's too many things happening at the same time. And also because actually the chronology of the figures that we're covering in the book is often very unclear. So we do have a timeline at the beginning of the book saying when everyone lived, but there's a lot of question marks. So actually the, my favorite line in the book, like I say, there's jokes. My favorite joke is that there are more uncertain dates in the book than at a high school dance. This is quite very funny. Line. Yeah, I, I like that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so it, it, you know, if you wanted to be strictly chronological, you'd have a lot of trouble deciding to decide who to go, who to cover first, anyway. So instead of doing it like that, we took what is um, a pretty traditional approach in some ways, maybe because it's almost unavoidable, of covering all of the so-called orthodox schools. So Niyaya, Mimamsa, Vaisheshika, and so on. And then turning to the so-called unorthodox schools, namely the Buddhists and Jains. However, uh, we don't like that terminology, for one thing, because it's very normative, right? So orthodox people who think rightly (laughs) and heterodox people who think in some different way. So obviously the Buddhists would never have described themselves as heterodox, they would have described themselves as orthodox, like the ones who think rightly. Um, so that's one problem. And another problem is that the uh, the idea that there's like this system of Vedic schools and that there's exactly six of them is, I think, to some extent, a kind of retrospective classificatory scheme that was imposed on the material. And it leaves some things out. So for example, there's a really fascinating tradition called Charvaka, who are these sort of materialist, naturalist philosophers who are not Buddhists or 
Jains, but they're not one of the six Vedic schools either. So we use terminology like Brahminical and Vedic to describe the what other people often call the Orthodox schools to get away from that terminology. What so do you, sorry, what do you make or do you use or think, think through alongside the term the terms uh, Astika and Nastika? Do those work? Yeah. Uh, I don't, I guess I don't have a strong feeling about that. Um, it seems like that's not how Janardin, that's not terminology that Janardin wanted to use. Um, and I think, and maybe in a way, in, any distinction like that is probably just not fine grained enough for what we wanted to do. Um, and in any case, he had a different way of thinking about it, which is, I think, more interesting anyway, which is, has to do more with the way that the traditions actually present their ideas. So, so instead of organizing it around this, around Astika and Nastika or Orthodox heterodox, we organize it around genre. Because if you look at the Vedic schools and also Charvaka, for example, and, and some other kinds of literature as well, um, like for example, literature on theater, which is what, what we have a chapter on, on the aesthetics of Rasa in uh, theatrical or you know drama productions. Um, you you have the, this kind of text, which is at least in the kind of paradigmatic case, um, first composed as a set of so-called sutras which are these very, as you, I'm sure you know, are these very compressed uh, kind of difficult to understand texts that seem to consist of almost of aphorisms. And then there's a, there's a, will be at least one and usually many layers of commentary on top of that. And so the second part of the book, actually, rather than talking about in terms of Vedic or Orthodox, it talks about in terms of the production of sutras and commentaries on sutras. Um, so we actually call that section the age of the sutra. And then after covering all of the traditions that work like that, we then turn to Buddhism and Jainism. I think it actually does make a lot of sense to do it in that order because the Buddhists, especially, or actually the Jains as well, that, that it's really almost impossible to understand what they're doing unless you have already looked at the Vedic material because they are criticizing and reacting to the Vedic traditions so extensively and the Jains are, are a really interesting example because they're, they have this fascinating epistemological position according to which everyone is right. And so all of the schools are getting some aspect of the truth. And the thing that's special about the Jains is not that they're the only ones who have the truth, but they're, that the only, they're the only ones who realize that all of the other positions are fragments of the truth or are partial truths, and they're the only ones who kind of see from this higher perspective where all the truths are somehow included at the same time, which is really fascinating. But obviously, if you're trying to explain that, you wouldn't want to start with the Jains, right? Because their whole point is to like incorporate all the insights from all the other schools and sort of raise up to this higher perspective. Um, similarly with Buddhism, uh, some things you could say about Buddhism without having gone into the Vedic traditions, like, for example, the importance of escaping suffering, which arguably is an idea that Buddhism brought into the Vedic traditions rather than the other way around. Obviously, that's contentious. But a lot of the stuff we get into in the third part of the book with Buddhism, for example, Nagarjuna's doctrine of emptiness, 
is very clearly a reaction against ideas that are at home in the Vedic schools. So in some ways, the order of proceeding is, is almost um, forced on you. So you have, you have to do this early material, Upanishads, Vedas, Upanishads, um, Buddhist canon, uh, beginning of Jainism. Then you kind of have to do all these sutra texts and the commentaries thereon. And then you have to do Buddhists and Jains. So those are the three sections of the book. And it almost seemed inevitable, it, it, like at that very large level of organization. Um, it, I'm not sure how else we could have done it, although no doubt there would have been ways, but it seemed to make a lot of sense. Well, it's not dissimilar to the overarching flow of how one introduces Hinduism in a world religion class, for example. Um, So the chapters are, there are 49 of them. They're relatively relatively small. They're manageable. They're an accessible style. Uh, There's a lot of sort of humor uh, interwoven, uh, very clever titles. Um, So who would you say these chapters are for? Who is this publication for? Who, who do you think would benefit from this? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, one, so one thing is that we might want to distinguish between the idea of just picking up this book and the idea of reading the whole book series. Because you might say, well, this, this book must be aimed at someone who doesn't know anything about Indian philosophy yet. And although that it was it's certainly designed to work for someone like that and probably the the um primary targets uh, usually when i'm writing it i think that i'm writing for sort of a bright undergraduate who's curious about stuff so that's kind of the ideal target audience but the thing is that you would really have to know a lot about indian philosophy to get through this book and not learn anything from it i mean you'd, you'd have to not only be an expert on Indian philosophy, probably, but you'd have to be an expert on Indian philosophy with very wide ranging interests because we cover some pretty unexpected things as well as the things that you would expect us to cover. So of course we do like Nyaya theory of knowledge. Um, of course we do Mimamsa theory of language. Of course we do Advaita Vedanta monism. Um, we do Buddhist no self theory. So there's stuff in there that you can find in introductions to Indian philosophy elsewhere. But we also have things like a chapter on Tantra. We have, like I said, a chapter on drama. There's a chapter on the role of women in ancient Indian culture generally and in philosophical texts specifically. There's a chapter on nonviolence, the ethic of nonviolence. There's a chapter on Kautilya and Ashoka and ancient political theory. So I don't think there are, I mean, I guess I looked at all the English language introductions to Indian philosophy while we were doing this. Actually, at the beginning, I read a whole bunch of them because I needed to know what was going on, obviously. Um, and there is, there's certainly, as far as I'm aware, there's no introduction to Indian philosophy in English, which is both aimed at a kind of general readership and this detailed. And that's typical of the series as a whole. Right? So the idea is always writing for a beginner, but trying to cover the material in much more detail and thoroughness than a beginner would normally be offered. So in that sense, it kind of fits into the whole book series. And for someone who read the whole book series, of course, what the idea would be that, um, you know, they kind of have an opportunity to situate Indian philosophy relative to what was going on in the same time in uh, 
classical Europe. So, you know, ancient philosophy, Hellenistic philosophy, which is contemporaneous with what we're covering here. And ideally, then, if you sort of think ahead, there will eventually be a podcast series and book about Chinese philosophy. So that will kind of complete the three um, independent centers of ancient philosophy. Fascinating. There is a tension in, in sort of who the book is aimed at in that. Um, I think it's, I think it's, it's positive in that um, on the one hand, it is aimed at, you know, the, the, the sharp student interested undergraduate, or um, in my case, I have uh, um, more experience teaching the continuing studies crowd, right? Folks who are just interested in ideas, you know, um, got a bit of time on their hands. And so that's definitely who would get a lot out of the book. But at the same time, I mean, you have, it's this, it's this really fascinating tension of, of breadth and depth. And it's usually one or the other, right? So it's such that, you know, an expert in the field such as myself, and obviously if you're an expert in, in, in Hinduism or, or, or some textual tradition or the epics or, you know, there'll be tons uh, in the Vedic material that I have to defer to one of my colleagues or email and ask about something from the Rig Veda, for example, or the historicity of the Rig Veda, uh, what little we know of it or whatever the case may be or, or, or Rasa theory. So for me, there's, there's a lot in here that just, you know, clicks in my brain because you, you've absorbed it over, you know, years of, of study. And there's stuff where I could easily go to a section that I may not be so sharp with at the moment and sort of um, recall or even deepen my knowledge for a little piece. So, so that's sort of what I'm getting. There's this real tension between depth and breadth, which makes this useful for the armchair Indian philosopher and in certain ways, even folks, I think, who are um, advanced in their study of Indian philosophy, would you say? Yeah, I think one actually one way to understand what's going on and sort of see why it feels like that when you read it is if you understand how it was written. This is a little bit less true with this book than it is with some of the others because here we have Janardin kind of decanting his knowledge into it and he he knows a vast amount about the material um, and a lot of it was written in the first instance by him with then me kind of going in and adding jokes, right? So some of it is, some of it, we may, we, if you want, we can talk more about the way it was written in terms of the collaborative process, but a lot of it was written by him in the first instance. Uh, but some of it I wrote the first draft for. And the way that I approach writing these things in general is that I'll go off and spend a couple of weeks reading if not everything I can find, then quite a lot to the point where I really have a sense of where this, what the secondary literature view of the topic would be. Right. And then I distill that into a bite-sized chunk, which is then like a 20, 25 minute long podcast, a short chapter. And so what you're getting really is me sort of, uh, giving you on a plate what I found out by going off and reading some very hardcore research. So I'm reading a specialist literature that was aimed at other specialists usually, but then I'm describing what they said in a way that's aimed at a non-specialist. So that might explain why you're feeling that tension between, well, hang on a second, is this introductory or is it not? And the answer is, 
is an introduction to the non-introductory way that people talk about it in other publications usually. And by the way, I should say that Jenardin is a very non-introductory kind of guy. Like he's really brilliant and like very deep inside the stuff. So he, he was never in danger of making the stuff too easy or too simple. Usually I had to kind of um, pull him back from making it philosophically too challenging, if anything. So the, the so I think that in a way, the, his involvement also makes it feel quite challenging in some ways and, and quite deep because he's, he was really very deeply into the philosophical problems, but it, hopefully it's still something that anyone can read and get something out of. Well, you, you get a, I mean, the expression of, you know, losing sight of the forest for the trees, uh, in my personal experience, that's all too common the case for many scholars who are just, they're splitting hair really, really well, but they, they, they're not quite, in, in my view, able to convey a sense of where the hair sits on the head or the braid that it's part of and with the forest. And you get both the trees and the forest here, right? So it's, it's fascinating. It's, it's an interesting texture. I haven't quite experienced this kind of texture. In, um, yeah, part of what, definitely part of what I always want to get across in all the books, but obviously including this one, is that you could come away from it with a sense of what was just basically going on, right? Like, so what is Niaya? What is their project? Why do they exist? What kinds of things did they write? Um, if, if all you come away from, when you finish reading the book, if all that you've got is sort of that for each of the main traditions, I would kind of consider that to be job done because if someone wants to really get into Niaya and start like going off and, you know, thinking about how you can use formal logic to represent Niaya's uh, um, ways of like analyzing epistemology and philosophy of science and so on, like obviously you can go in, in as deep as you want, but the aim isn't to give the listener that. The aim is to give the listener, um, you know, a, a kind of textured sense, as you said, of what's going on. So I'm really glad that that's how it seemed to you. That is definitely the goal. You see the forest, but you also see the dynamism of the trees in the forest. And it's it, you kind of pan in and pan out. And yeah. so it's interesting. Um, so there are lots and lots of threads. Um, one for pretty much every philosophical or textual tradition you can find yeah, in, um, in South Asia. Let me ask you this question. What about religion? Where where do you see? I mean, we happen to be doing a podcast for uh, 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 new books in Hindu studies, and I'm not in any way asking this to justify the inclusion of this in the podcast. Because certainly, it's a great fit. I'm asking it to sort of understand um, what you think of the role between quote-unquote religion and philosophy in South Asia. You may even want to be comparative in your response if you'd like, but I, I, I have no agenda. I'm just curious to know about how you see that phenomenon. Yeah, that comes up a lot with the whole series, of course, because um, as I said, I've covered medieval Latin philosophy. I've covered philosophy in the Islamic world. I've covered Byzantine philosophy. I'm doing the Italian Renaissance right now. Uh, and even in Africana philosophy, a lot of Africana thinkers from the 19th century that we've been doing recently are very, very religious, as you might imagine. And in fact, um, the, the, if, if you wanted to 
disentangle the history of philosophy from the history of religion. I think that you could only do it by being radically more selective in the history of philosophy than I am being. Right? So if you, th- if you said, I'm only going to cover philosophers who do not work in any kind of religious context because they don't care about religion, like if you were that, if you were that, um, and the, by the way, some people feel like this, right? So they think philosophy is basically like Plato and Aristotle because although they were pagan believers, they didn't really care or something, or they were critical of pagan religion or whatever. So they're in for whatever reason. And then the next philosopher is like Hume, right? Because everything between Aristotle and Hume is just this one long religious motivated project and none of it's really philosophy and there are certainly some people who feel like that um needless to say that's not my approach and in fact i think that in general what you learn by looking at the history of philosophy is that there are many contexts historical contexts intellectual contexts economic contexts um, issues of gender for example class these are all things which dramatically affect the way that philosophy is put on a page or debated orally. And I don't really understand, to be honest, why people think that religion should have some special status such that when the context has to do with religion, all of a sudden it's not philosophy anymore, right? So, oh, well, if there are unargued principles here or like limits constraining what the philosopher can say, and it came from religion, then somehow that ruins the whole thing. But if it came from the person's socioeconomic status, I don't care about that, right? Like the fact that Hume was this um, upper class Scot, right? And had all kinds of un, uh, uninspected presuppositions about, you know, the relationship between men and women, the relationship between Europeans and the rest of the world, um, the possible things he could have thought about uh, history and economics, all the things he wrote about, right? Um, like all of the presuppositions are okay and don't impair his philosophy from being some kind of genuinely open inquiry into truth. But if he had been piously religious, like a fervent religious believer, that would have been a problem. So I think that's just crazy to me. So there's a long-winded way of saying that for me, religion is just one of the many kinds of context in which th- that set the agenda and maybe limits of what philosophy can be and also that set motivation. So a good example, a great example actually from the Indian context would be Mimamsa, right? So you have this whole school that developed these very complicated theories about linguistic utterances, um, commands, the, the, uh, the circumstances under which you are or are not susceptible to a command, like does it apply to you? If it does apply to you, what kind of obligation does it place on you? And this is all completely universalizable. It could be exported and applied to any context of linguistic utterance, any context of giving someone a command. But why are they doing it? Well, because they're trying to understand the commands that are set down in Vedic literature for carrying out a ritual, right? So it's got a very explicit religious context and it's very, very complicated, sophisticated philosophy of language and of pra- and practical philosophy. Um, and I just don't 
it's, it, to me, it, it just seems like the only thing you would get out of trying to draw a, draw a firm boundary between religion and philosophy there is that you would make it maybe make life easier for yourself, but also you'd be missing out on all this great stuff that the, the Mamsakas came up with to try to explain how commands work. Right. And it just seems like that would be a shame to me. And what you'd be losing there is philosophical insight. Um, so generally speaking, I'm, I'm totally relaxed about the fact that the history of philosophy and the history of religion are completely interwoven. And that's why I don't think we should, I mean, but people sometimes say, Oh, is Buddhism philosophy or is it religion? Right. I mean, I almost can't think of a less interesting question. Let's, um, uh, you know, I think um, I tend to agree with you, uh, which is neither here nor there. I have conversations on this podcast with people who have different views all the time. But, um, there seems to me, from what I gleaned from being taught undergrads and continuing studies and just constantly learning through conversation in life, it seems to me that in our current juncture in history, we have internalized this sort of ideal, this, this imaginary of a religiously sterile, secular, uh, 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 locus, a space in which ideas can unfurl and somehow untainted by notions of uh, divinity, of piety, of praxis, of, uh, we seem to have this idea you know, that we can that we want to find that sort of thought that's divorced from, 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 from being and the ways in which people theologize and mythologize being and existing in the world. And it seems to me you might as well, um, you might as well try to look for mangoes without looking for mango trees, personally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, so if you think about, um, yeah, what, so what, I totally agree with you what you're saying. And if you think about philosophers that come from this cultural context, which is actually a very recent cultural context where you could be in an effectively secularized society where you're, maybe you weren't raised religious, maybe none of your friends are religious, your family wasn't religious, right? And so you're doing philosophy and you can tell yourself that you, you no longer have any boundaries or constraints like thought will just go wherever it wants. And this is why people, this is why I use the example of Hume, right? Because I think people thought that that's what Hume did because he challenged the reality of miracles. He was sort of famously irreverent when it came to religion. And that's all true, but it's not like Hume has no context. And it's also not like, you know, John Rawls, famous um, liberal political theorist of the late 20th century. It's not like John Rawls had no context. The context may not be religious belief, but it's something else, right? So he's a liberal American who, or was he American? But he's liberal working in America anyway. And so that gives him a kind of intellectual, uh, like I say, an intellectual context within, within which he's working, which we need to understand in order to situate his project. And for me, uh, you know, something like a commitment to the unarguable truth of the Vedas is the context in which Mimamsa developed. So um, there, there's some really, you, you mentioned before that you're, you used to work on Shankara, maybe you still do. Um, 
And Shankara is, uh, is a really fascinating figure in this respect because he explicitly says that there are some things that he's going to take to be true that he could not know to be true if it wasn't for the fact that they were in the Vedas, right? So the, there are some things he thinks anyone could know. And there are some things he thinks that you can only know through revelation from the Vedas. He's super clear about that, right? And then he, he says, okay, so we'll take that for granted and then we'll go on and give this philosophical argument on that basis, right? So in a way, I mean, I think it, maybe sometimes people worry that religious figures are going to sort of try to smuggle in their religious views into their philosophy, but he's not doing that at all. He's telling you with super clarity and explicitness where all of his presuppositions come from and that some of them come from the Vedas and have to, because there's no other way of getting those truths. And then he philosophizes on that basis. So the situation is very clear. And in his case, you actually have a, a, a very nice uh, sort of openness about the context and motivation of his philosophy. And I don't think that anyone could deny that what he then goes on to do on that basis is philosophy, right? So he develops a monist theory, which for him is the most plausible interpretation of the Vedas and the Upanishads. And he considers counter arguments, which sometimes are textual, right? Like when it says such and such in the Upanishads, it doesn't mean monism. It means there's something else, something else like his, his rivals would say. So sometimes there are scriptural, scriptural um, objections, but a lot of times the objections are also just philosophical objections. Like that can't be true because we have independent uh, experience of the world. So how are you going to explain this? And he's like, oh, I can explain it. Don't worry. And he gives you a story. So um, what you said to be true of Shankara, um, I, I find it so fascinating. Is that not... Is that not what we strive after in our own scholarship or, or expect just to some extent from undergrads and training, i.e. Uh, being conscious of one's bias, uh, of, of, of setting out, you know, one's preconceived ideas, notions, bents? Because it's not that, it's not such that an individual can be bereft of such bias. So those who do not bring into the conscious fold the, the ideas that they're prejudiced towards or against, they are the, they, uh, they really, their work falls prey to those ideas unconsciously influencing it. And they're just open to all kinds of critique versus saying, these are my presuppositions, this is where I'm coming from, these are my biases, now let's rock. Right. And so it's it's really fascinating, isn't it? That in this ancient um, Indian philosopher, you have this very sober and responsible move of saying, "Here is my starting point." Right, laying his cards on the table. Right, it seems to be very intellectually responsible. Yeah, and in fact, I would even say that that's an example of something that we can notice and admire about. Indian philosophy in this period more generally, namely that it was exquisitely self-conscious. So part, I think partially that's because um, various schools, the most obvious case would be the Niyayas, but it's also very true of the Buddhists, for example, and the Jains, as I was saying before, they develop these very articulate, explicit 
theories about how argumentation should work. And we should probably also try, we should remember here that um, a lot of the ideas we're reading would have been offered in oral contexts, often the context of debate. So you can tell when you read, read the Nyaya Sutra, you can tell that what they're thinking of there, the people who wrote it, uh, are, is an, a live encounter between more than one, so presumably two, in the first instance, two scholars who are going to debate with one another, and then someone will be the winner, right? And that dialectical confrontation is a kind of contest. I mean, one's tempted to call it a game, except that it could have been very serious, right? So a lot was at stake, often materially, uh, in these contests, but also spiritually, in terms of prestige, um, also just in terms of the truth, right? So the law was at stake, and there were rules that may have been tacit until the Nyaya came along, and they were trying to make these rules explicit so that everyone would argue well and argue according to the rules. And although the Nyaya are, the, again, like the most striking example there, it's just a general fact about Indian philosophy, I think, that there's, it's almost like there's two things going on all the time. There's whatever the philosophical point is that they're trying to make. And then there's them modeling for you how you should go about talking about this kind of thing. Right? So here's my argument. And notice that it's this kind of argument. Right? Notice that I'm arguing here with a counterexample. Right? And they, they use a lot of terminology for um, the way that arguments work. Um, so that actually, this is comparable to something that happens in European philosophy, because after Aristotle invented logic and gives you this whole theory of syllogistic, a lot of philosophers in late antiquity and also the Islamic world, Latin medieval Europe, they will often say, okay, here's an argument and notice that it's a syllogism in the second figure, <laughs> right? The same thing happens in India, this kind of hyper-consciousness about how we should argue and how we are arguing all the time. And so I think what you were just saying about Shankara kind of giving you a, like a window into his biases by saying explicitly, here's, here's how I got to this premise. I got it from the Vedas. I could not have gotten it any other way. That's actually just an example of something they're doing all the time. What really surprised you? I mean, there's tons you obviously learned. Um, you could either speak about specific examples in one of the 49 chapters or speak about broad themes. What, what really surprised your group you about this, uh, from this odyssey through Indian thought? I, th- I think probably the biggest thing that surprised me is in fact how big it is. Because this book really only goes up to about the 6th century AD with a few forays into later material. So a couple of times where we even go up as far as the 11th century because we're talking about a, um, a theme and we want to to range across a wider chronological range, but it's basically up to the sixth century. So we stop before Buddhism begins to leave India and kind of make its way into Tibet and China. There's a kind of, um, you know, like a passing of the, of Buddhist philosophy from one culture to another, which ideally will cover thoroughly across the whole podcast and book series. Um, so even within that chronological range, I guess that to be honest, when I was, when I approached Janardin about doing it, I knew a little bit about Indian philosophy, not very much. And I thought, well, this will be interesting. And this will kind of like 
be, this will be kind of like, I don't know, learning about, let's say, late ancient philosophy, right? So there will be a few schools and I'll have to learn their presuppositions and so on. But actually, when I, when we actually did it, I realized, no, actually, ancient Indian philosophy is at least as packed full as all of ancient philosophy. So going back to the pre-Socratics all the way up to the end of the Roman Empire, it's at least that much in terms of ideas, figures to get your head around, if not more. And um, in general, I have to admit that I, I, I guess it never had really occurred to me that the whole history of Indian philosophy would be as large a topic as the whole history of European philosophy, even though in some sense that's obvious, right? So the populations are comfortable. And so why wouldn't it be? But I think that's really right. So in fact, um, in some ways, I think if we, if we sort of divided up our attention in an appropriate way, there would be one specialist on Indian philosophy in every philosophy department per specialist on European philosophy. So if there are five people doing history of European philosophy, there should be five people doing Indian philosophy. Of course, that's never the case. And there's lots of reasons for that. But that's the first thing I would say is I was just surprised at the sheer size of it as a topic. Um, And then I was also surprised, I guess, at the range of philosophical topics that are covered because I probably had this um, idea that a lot of outsiders have, which is that first of all, there's going to be a lot of religion, right? Like you said, second of all, oh yeah, we all know there's monism. We know that keep arguing about the self, right? So the Vedic schools believe in this eternal, unchanging self. The Buddhists say there is no self. I knew the Buddhists were going to be skeptical in their general orientation, didn't know anything about the Jains except what everyone knows. Um, So I kind of expected those to be the topics, right? What I didn't realize is that there was going to be philosophy of language and there was going to be this massive tradition of people writing about grammar with lots of linguistic philosophy in there. Um, There's a philosophy of mind to a much greater extent than I had expected. There's ethics, there's political philosophy. So I was really staggered both at the, um, at the the sheer range of figures and texts that we needed to grapple with. And also the sheer range of philosophical topics. Um, And then beyond that, of course, there were a few like more specific things that I was particularly taken by, but I think that that would be my first answer to your question is that I was like just blown away at the sense that the sense in which Indian philosophy is, is almost like discovering that Europe, something the size of European philosophy happened twice or maybe three times with Chinese philosophy plus other Asian traditions like Korea and Japan. So it really like blew my mind. It made me feel like I, that I'd only ever learned about at best half of the story of the history of philosophy, despite the fact that I do philosophy in the Islamic world, which a lot of people don't know about. And I, I was almost like, why did nobody tell me this before? That was kind of my reaction. That's sort of um, not dissimilar to when I returned to my undergrad after a stint of, of work. And I was interested in learning about uh, Indian culture and religion at the time in this Hinduism course. And uh, that's where I do our papers on anything. And I chose philosophical topics. And I thought, well, why didn't I know this existed? And then I, and I soon realized, well, obviously, we live in a particular culture with a particular narrative. And, and uh, you know, clearly, it's not practical to, to have 
uh, to have a curriculum wherein someone has exposure to all of the ideas uh, under the sun throughout all of recorded and pre-recorded time. Nevertheless, I think um, I think it's high time there was a little bit more um, diversity of ideas as part of uh, a liberal arts uh, education. Um, and I think that need is only exasperated by this uh, tenuous but palpable global village that's being uh, forged and reforged throughout this generation. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how much of the, how much of this sort of um, broadening of perspective occurs in the academy and how much of it occurs um, uh, for people through online courses or podcasts or sort of uh, driven by their own, by their own um, self-study. Um, what, I mean, there's lots and lots and lots of topics, but, um, you know, which uh, chapters or topics really, really spoke to you? Which did you love the most? I was really excited about the chapter about women in ancient philosophy. This is a good example of something that I didn't know would even be there. I didn't know that there were any, that there were records about female philosophers in ancient India. And there are, so there's, um, there are more than one figure who turn up in the early Upanishads who are women scholars who debate with male scholars. There's a famous scene where the, um, one of the central characters in the early Upanishads, Yajnavikya, is talking to one of his wives and they have a philosophical debate. And there's another character named Gargi who has a debate with him and loses, but is kind of has the lead position among the other scholars who debate with him because she's the one who declares him the winner of the whole uh, forum of debate. And then there are uh, texts in the Mahabharata, in Buddhist literature, and so on. So actually, um, that was, in a way, a microcosm of the whole experience, like going into this thinking, I wonder how much material there will be. In this case, will there be any material to talk about women philosophers? And then you start worrying whether you can pack it all into the amount of space you've allotted to it. So that was really great, really interesting. Um, I was very amazed at Nagarjuna. <laughs> so Nagarjuna kind of went from being someone whose name I had heard to being like one of my top 10 favorite philosophers of any time, any place. Just so interesting because he's so radical. And so, so he's a Buddhist, right? So he's, he, um, like I mentioned before, is this theory of emptiness where he uh, denies across the board that, that anything that exists has what he calls svabhava, which means something like intrinsic nature. And what he means by that and whether he can consistently say that is a matter of intense debate. And the debate is really interesting um, but I think his position is just also really interesting. So if if it's right the way that we interpret him, he seems to be saying that nothing has a kind of independent essence or nature. Rather, everything that there is can only be understood relatively to something else. So a simple example might be something like, um, I'm looking at you on the screen because we're doing this online interface. And I can see you, sort of, <laughs> can we call this seeing? Um, and you as a visual, visible object for me are defined in terms of your visibility to me and me as a seeing 
as a seer am defined in terms of me seeing something, namely you, right? So that's a simple example, but his idea is that everything is like that. That might be a little bit too simplistic a way of explaining his theory, but it's something along those lines. And I think that that's just like a very radical and interesting thing to have thought. It's also interesting to think about how it fits into the tradition of Buddhism, other metaphysical claims that go all the way back to the sayings that are ascribed to the Buddha. Um, so I thought that was really amazing as well. Um, uh, yeah, but I mean, I, as I always say, my favorite philosopher at the moment is usually whoever I'm writing a podcast about right now. And this was true for the Indian series as well. So like whatever we were working on at any given time, I was like, oh my goodness, this is interesting. I can't believe this. Um, and I just sort of had that feeling the whole time that we were writing it, but even more so than usual because it was all so new to me. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Could you say something, um, did you notice anything about the role of narrative of story? Could you say something about that? I'm not trying to lead you too much, but I'm wondering what your perspective is coming from a different philosophical tradition. What do you notice about the role of story in Indian philosophy? Yeah, I think that's something that comes up, especially in the first part of the book where we're talking about, so obviously the Upanishads are often narrative in form, or maybe they're even more like platonic dialogues or something. So that's a natural comparison. So you have um, this encounter between two different people and a debate, which often goes by very quickly and is very dense, and you're not really sure why they are or are not conceding certain points. So it's almost it's dramatic, as maybe not so much narrative as dramatic. Um, but the even more obvious example uh, would be uh, the Mahabharata. So we have a couple of episodes on that, and of course, like the star example would be the Bhagavad Gita, where you have this incredible moments where um, I mean, it would be like as if in Homer's Iliad, Achilles and Patrocles took time out from fighting the Trojans to have a discussion of metaphysics for 30, 40 pages. And then they're like, okay, anyway, back to killing Hector. Like, that's what it's like. It's just like so amazing that it's there at all. And then when you start reading it and really digging into it, there is a reason why it's famous. I mean, that is one amazing philosophical text. And of course it's a narrative and it also has the dialogue aspect, but the, the, I love the, the way that the context of the scene hangs over and kind of gives meaning to everything that they're talking about. So probably all your listeners know this, but the idea is that this major character from the Mahabharata, Arjuna, who is a great warrior, is supposed to attack his family members who are on the other side of the great war they're fighting. And he's hesitant to do this. And then it turns out that the person who's driving his chariot is God <laughs> or a God, but probably God, actually, according to the Gita. And, and God sort of reveals himself slowly as a divinity, right? And God explains to him why he should proceed by acting in the way that the plot requires him to the plot of the story. And so there's this amazing kind of um, like resonance between the idea of fate and necessity and divine will in the real world and the idea of the, the 
necessity of the story of the Mahabharata unfolding the way it's supposed to. Right? So there, so it's really um, like narrative. It's, it's, I mean, it's not so much like narrative imitating life. It, the point is that life imitates narrative because what happens in life is whatever is supposed to happen. Right? And it's, I mean, it's really a, a point that could never have been made in such a powerful way without inserting this philosophical conversation into the context of a great epic work. So that would be a perfect example of what you're talking about. That's uh, wonderfully said, the notion that life um, mimics narrative. It's, it's often how I think of uh, my own life, the lives of people who I, I chat with. Uh, so you may or may not be aware, but narrative is primarily what I do these days. I study South Asian narratives, uh, the, the epics, the Puranas, so that quite resonates. Um, so I think we've taken enough of your time for one day. <laughs> let's let's. Um, why, don't, why don't we put on people's radar what you're working on now? What's what's the next project? Uh, right. So I have um, I have this kind of dual life where I do um, you know normal research, and then I also do the podcast and the book series. So in normal research, I have uh, actually just, there's a sort of, a, I have two books that I finished writing just in the past few months um, because one took forever and one went very quick because it had to, because I was giving it as lectures at um, University of Notre Dame and the University of Oxford. So the one that took a long time is a book about a philosopher who lived in the ninth and 10th centuries in Iraq and Iran named Abu Bakr al-Razi, who was a great doctor and also a philosopher, a very kind of unorthodox philosopher, to use that word, unorthodox. So I have a book about him that's coming out, and then I have a book that is a wide-ranging discussion of the idea of authority and belief in medieval philosophy. So the basic idea of the book is that people assume that medieval cultures were very authority-bound and that everyone was sort of goes back to what we were saying about religion, actually, that people were very constrained in what they were allowed to believe and really were just supposed to take all their beliefs on authority. And then I point out in the book that actually philosophers in the Islamic world, Byzantium and Latin Christendom, because the book is part of the idea is to range over all three medieval cultures, that these that philosophers and intellectuals from these cultures had really sophisticated, interesting ideas about how to deal with authority and expertise, which I think is relevant today because we're living through a period where expertise is kind of coming in for a lot of skepticism and opposition. So if you think about you know climate change or people not caring that all the economists said Brexit would be a disaster or people who don't believe in vaccines, I'm kind of thinking that vaccines will become more popular now and harder to attack given what's going on with the virus. Um, but uh, that was sort of the, the motivation of the book. So that I'm doing that on the sort of proper research side. Uh, and then on the podcast side at the moment, we are projecting that we'll finish the first book's worth of Africana series, uh, of the Africana series by the end of this calendar year. So by the end of 2020, and that will take us up to 1900. And there will be two books worth of Africana philosophy by me and Chike Jeffers. And then um, in the European series, which is, comes out in alternating weeks, I'm doing the Italian Renaissance. So that will be a book together with Byzantium, 
So there will be a book on Byzantine philosophy and Italian, the Italian Renaissance and the first book of Africana. And I guess that those will both come out in 2021 or 22. So lots of interesting content coming down the pipes. Hope so, that's, yeah. uh, <laughs> that's fascinating. So uh, once again, for those of you listening, we've been speaking with uh, Peter Adamson um, regarding his publication. Uh, it was actually Peter Adamson and also uh, Gennaro Gnary on their publication, Classical Indian Philosophy, History Philosophy Without Any Gaps, Volume 5, which is a book that started off as a podcast. So we've come full circle. Uh, thank you very much for your time today, Peter. Thank you for having me on. My pleasure. Also, if there are any uh, suggestions, comments, uh, works you may like us to, to cover, then perhaps you could send me a note at Raj at rajbalkan.com. Until next time, keep reading and also keep listening. Take care. I like that. Keep reading, keep listening. That's good.